the mutations and variants that are going to grow up in India and circulate around the world and come to the United States are going to be a, a threat, certainly to unvaccinated Americans, potentially to vaccinated Americans. So I really don't think we are acting uh, with the scale and the urgency that we need to. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some weekends, we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all, for you to hear. Today, it's an interview with the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas. That's coming right up. Richard, welcome, and thank you uh, for doing the podcast with us today. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, Anything for you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about it on the way over. Uh, you served uh, and on the staff of the National Security Council under President George H.W. Bush from 1989 to 1993. You are now the president of the Council on Foreign Relations in the year 2021. What's changed in in those? <laughs> in addition years? to the fact that I'm probably an inch shorter, have lost some hair, and gained a few pounds. Uh, yeah, those things. Yeah. Look, one is in '89. We were still in the latter stages, indeed, the, the final half inning of the Cold War, and the wall came down uh, on all days of uh, 11 9 89. So the Bush administration, Bush 41, began in a context that existed for 40 years, bipolarity, U.S.-Soviet geopolitical competition, uh, and all that. That had been weakening as the Cold War essentially began to fade. And then over the next couple of years, you had the dissolution of two empires, the dissolution of the Soviet external empire, uh, the Warsaw Pact, Comic-Con on the economic side, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union itself. And so you had a, the Bush administration ended in early 93 with a degree of American primacy that was really unprecedented. Charles Krauthammer wrote a famous article in our magazine, Foreign Affairs, uh, called The Unipolar Moment. And essentially, the world had moved from, a, a, again, bipolarity that had existed for 40 years to essentially the United States without a geopolitical up here, and we, we enjoyed advantages by any and every measure that were quite extraordinary. Fast forward 30 years later, uh, we're no longer alone. You have uh, the revival of uh, Russia as a, as a, not a peer, but a, certainly as the rival, one that's quite uh, committed to opposing us on virtually every front. So hopes that U.S.-Russian relations would become positive have not been borne out. You have the emergence of a geopolitical, geoeconomic peer, obviously, in, in China. You have uh, a distribution of power in the world in the hands of the Irans, the North Koreas, and, and, and many others. Uh, the emergence of all sorts of terrorist groups, non-state actors with capacity. The, the emergence of global issues that are much more pressing. Obviously, now we're talking from the context of global uh, pandemics but also, obviously, climate change. Uh, the whole cyberspace has really emerged as a major international issue. It, it wasn't uh, before. So you've got all this. And then on top of it all, on top of the reemergence of geopolitics, 
this whole raft of global issues that's come upon us, John. You've also now got fundamental questions about the United States itself, about American democracy, about our cohesion as a country that, that we're literally not on the radar screen. We're not in anybody's uh, on anybody's mind 30 uh, years ago. The real question was how we were going to deal with the the post-Cold War dividend, to what extent should we, did we have the luxury of putting our feet up, what else we were going to do. And we had all this discretionary power to use. And if you remember some of the final debates of that Bush administration, or for example, what to do as the former Yugoslavia was, uh, was uh, unraveling. But 30 years later, I would say in many ways, the country and the world are, I wouldn't say they're unrecognizable, but fundamentally different. It is amazing how much it's changed. And one thing, uh, you know, there there have been in the past the Monroe Doctrine, the Nixon yep. Doctrine, the Reagan Doctrine, ways of looking at the world and and trying to navigate from those frameworks, if you will. Uh, the the framework, uh, the unipolar framework that the U.S. enjoyed for low those many years, uh, has disappeared. You argued in a uh, terrific piece in Foreign Affairs magazine that what was needed now was something similar to the concert of Europe. I was wondering if you could walk us through that. Sure. Um, We just described a world of revived geopolitical dynamics and a world of global issues in which the challenges, these global challenges in many ways is outpacing any collective willingness and ability to come together to, to deal with them. This is not a, a pretty picture. It's not, it's not a healthy dynamic or trajectory. But when I look at the existing institutions, I'm not reassured. Uh, UN Security Council has never really been central to the functioning of the world. Uh, the great powers uh, on it all have vetoes, which often prevents the Security Council from acting. And many countries that should be there are not on it say, uh, Japan or, 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 or India or arguably others. So, and you can't fix it. Uh, it's simply impossible to seriously perform. You've got groups like the G7, the G8, and the G20, but they're not real institutions. G20, I think, is too large to be a uh, really functioning uh, group. And they're kind of fly-in, fly-out meetings more than, than anything else. A lot of the institutions that were born after World War II are simply, they're long in the tooth, no longer uh, adequate for one reason or another. So uh, we looked around, we in this case was one of my colleagues, Charlie Kupchan, a professor at Georgetown and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and I, and began to talk about what other arrangements might there be for promoting order, peace, stability, prosperity in the world. And we essentially landed on the idea of, as you mentioned, the 19th century concert of Europe that lasted for roughly half a century or so after the Napoleonic Wars in in Europe, where countries came together and set certain rules of the day about how to structure international relations. They didn't agree on everything, but they agreed on some things. And that became our model for today. Might it not make sense to bring together the great powers of this era, United States, Russia, China, Japan, Europe, India, uh, and have them meet on a regular basis, not, not to bring about perpetual peace, as uh, Mr. Kant once talked about, but instead to try to head off some problems, to mute some other uh, differences, simply because we didn't think 
any other existing arrangement had a right and either who was there or wasn't there. We didn't think episodic diplomacy was right. And we thought without something like this, without what you might describe as a steering mechanism for the world, John, things would likely deteriorate. The gap between global challenges and global responses would grow. Great power dynamics would get even rougher around the uh, edges. And we'd either end up with a really messy, disorderly world, possibly spheres of influence, which would do more harm than good. So we came up with this, not as a panacea, not as perfection, but as is often the case, as the least bad idea we could think of that would make a contribution. What kind of response did you get to uh, the essay? <laughs> Mixed. Mixed. <laughs> not muted. <but laughs> definitely not muted. We got, we got complaints. We got the complaints that it wasn't necessary. Existing institutions were just fine if you only tweak them a bit. I find that hard to take as a terribly serious critique. Uh, certain countries were unhappy, not with the idea, but with their non-inclusion. <laughs> and it wasn't enough for them when I said, we'd be happy to invite you uh, if and when you were central to some issue at hand. Let me just say, any chance I had of getting a knighthood went out the window with this uh, <laughs> with this uh, article when the UK didn't make the, uh, the, uh, the cut. cut. The, um, I think the most serious criticism of it, and it is that when you had the concert of Europe two centuries ago, there was a degree of ideological overlap. These were essentially conservative countries. Many of them were empires. And they, they, they knew what they didn't want domestically and so forth. Um, the real question today is whether there is sufficient overlap or commonality, in particular among the United States and Russia, United States and China, to make this work. And I think that's a fair question, a fair criticism. And my view is, well, let's try it. And again, we're not promising uh, the moon. What we are basically saying is we think it's better than what we have, better than the alternatives. It would provide a regular form for interaction. I think then there's less chance of strategic surprise, less chance of miscalculation, less chance of the kind of showboating you had when the United States and China got together a few weeks ago, less pressure because these are private, regular meetings. Uh, and again, if we're wrong, I don't think there's a lot to be lost by trying uh, what, what, what we're suggesting. You wrote a terrific book uh, a couple of years ago called World in Disarray, uh, which I use in the News Items newsletter. Um, yeah, John, you're right up there with, with China when it comes to intellectual property theft. I just want to point that out. <laughs> well, you know, I mean. It's sort of public domain, isn't it? Uh, anyway, the, it's a terrific book, and it was made into uh, a terrific uh, documentary that you did with HBO and Vice. Um, a subject that was not in there, if I remember correctly, was Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, and here we are uh, with The Economist putting Taiwan as like the the most important or the most dangerous place in the world. Uh, at the moment. Um, you argued in an article, uh, an essay that you wrote, I think, for Foreign Affairs, that the U.S. had to shift from uh, strategic flexibility uh, to strategic certainty regarding uh, Taiwan. I wondered if you could walk our audience through that. Sure. Well, so let me digress for a minute. Uh, United States and well, you know, mainland China, the People's Republic of China, however you want to refer to it, forged their, their modern relationship 
four decades or actually, you know, four or five decades ago. Uh, the glue was the shared animosity towards the, the Soviet Union. But the biggest stumbling block to the United States and China forging a workable relationship was Taiwan. And you know, Taiwan was a grew out of the Chinese Civil War when the communists won. They took control of the mainland. The so-called nationalists went to what was then called Formosa, created the Republic of China uh, there. And the mainland has always said that there's only one China. There can't be uh, two. And the Taiwan is, is a part of China from their point of view. The United States, after the end of the Chinese uh, Civil War, we recognized uh, what we now call Taiwan. Republic of China from 49 through basically for the next uh, 30 years. But because of great power politics, when we for, when we decided to come together a bit with the People's Republic of China, we, we switched and we recognized uh, the mainland, Peking and Beijing now as the capital. But this question of Taiwan status was had to be finessed. And it really was an extraordinary piece of diplomatic statecraft or finesse by Nixon and Kissinger on our side, by Mao and Zhou and Lai on, on China's. And essentially, what was agreed upon was what was known as strategic, uh, well, essentially, the, the, using Middle Eastern language, the final status of, of Taiwan was going to be determined by the people of China and the people of Taiwan. Our only view was it had to be voluntary. It was coercive. We agreed that there was only one China. But the whole question of Taiwan's relationship with China was TBD to be determined. And our only view was that, again, it had to be, if the status quo changed in any direction, it had to be uh, voluntary. And what we did, what we were worried, though, uh, was about two possibilities that would upset the status quo and cause a crisis to war. One was that the mainland would use force to bring about non-voluntary unification. And the other was that Taiwan would declare independence and that would be unacceptable to the mainland, and that would trigger war. So what we basically did was came up with this notion 40-odd years ago of strategic ambiguity. And basically, we told the mainland, you cannot rule out that we might use force to help Taiwan if you act against it. So they couldn't be sure that we wouldn't help Taiwan. And we told Taiwan, you do something like declare independence, which we would see as reckless. You cannot be sure that we will use force to help you. So if you add it all up, it was a kind of deterrence from changing the status quo through American uncertainty. And this has worked remarkably well for the best part of four or five decades. And the reason that people like me wanted to revisit it is we were worried, two things were, in this case, I wrote it with another colleague, David Sachs. One was the buildup of Chinese military capability, remarkable increases over the uh, years. And the other is words coming out of Beijing from Xi Jinping. Uh, China's uh, China's leader that were quite ambitious and quite impatient when it came to Taiwan. So our view was we needed to introduce a degree, degree of strategic clarity to basically tell the mainland, you should know that if you act forcibly against Taiwan, we're going to be there to help. We wouldn't specify exactly how. We're still not giving Taiwan a green light. We're not saying you can act recklessly. You shouldn't assume this is... Uh, this is uh, unconditional. This is all being done within the same framework that there's one China. We're not changing any of the uh, of the, the basics. So we put this out there. We thought this would help deterrence. And what we also have made clear is that what also has to change is not simply the rhetoric, but the capability. Right now, there's a gap 
between America's commitments in the Taiwan Relations Act and another piece of this diplomatic architecture, our commitments to Taiwan, and our capability to make good on them. So we said we think it's important to change the rhetorical question about the means of U.S. policy, keep the diplomatic ends, and introduce greater military capability on the part of the United States, Taiwan, and of all the neighbors, uh, Japan. Uh, I don't think a crisis is, is imminent, but I think one is a lot more possible than it used to be. And where the economist is right, if a crisis were to come about, it would become the most dangerous place in the world, given how central the United States and China are to this era of history. Uh, Kurt Campbell, who was sort of, I guess you would call him the Asia czar for uh, for the Biden administration, uh, said the other day that uh, he wasn't ready to move off of, the U.S. wasn't ready to move off of strategic yeah. uncertainty. Um, right. What What is, uh, why did he say that? It was interesting that he said it because this is an administration where the Secretary of State has said the U.S. commitment to Taiwan is rock solid. Now, if that's not strategic clarity, I don't know what is. <laughs> so I didn't understand that. Plus, this administration is poking the dragon in the eye. One of the things this administration is continuing that was begun by the previous administration is we are upgrading our day-to-day -day interaction with Taiwan, with officials in the government, with uh, and so forth. So this administration has already sent over a high-level level delegation there. Uh, we're inviting you know, the Taiwan ambassador to the you know, envoy, the head of their de facto diplomatic mission to the United States, was invited to the inauguration. We're, we're, we're doing all sorts of symbolic things, which, by the way, get the mainland, get the mainland Chinese really, really unhappy and nervous. So my view is we ought to cut out this symbolic stuff, which increases their unease about the potential for Taiwan independence. I actually think brings a, a crisis closer. I think we ought to cool it on some of the symbolic stuff and focus on the substantive stuff, what it is we say and what it is we do to increase deterrence. And, to, and one way we would do it is make it be more explicit about some of the costs that would accrue to the mainland if they were to use uh if they were to use force or, or act coercively against uh, Taiwan. So I didn't quite understand uh, what Kurt Campbell was uh, talking about, given what they're saying and what they're doing. It seemed to me he was making a distinction without a, without a difference. So speaking of assertive nations, Russia has become uh, much more assertive uh, of late. And I was going to ask you about the Arctic, but I think given what's happened in Ukraine, um, our listeners would be interested to hear what you think uh, about what's going on there. Specifically, there's been a number of col uh, columns and essays written that suggest that it's not really about Ukraine so much as it is about control of the Black Sea. Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand that. I'm hoping you do and can explain it to us. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I, I've got to tell you, John, I've been watching what Mr. Putin has been doing. And it's a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, he's built up all sorts of forces against Ukraine. He's then, to some extent, built them down. There's some elements remain in place. He has not articulated clear purposes. And given his concentration of power, if he wanted to do something, he could. Uh, Ukraine only has limited capabilities to resist. They're obviously not a member of NATO. 
geography is on Russia's side. So I'm sitting here watching what Putin's doing, trying to make head or tails of it. So let me give you another possible analysis that it's not really about Ukraine so much. It's not really about the Black Sea. It's not even what some people suggest, which is the wag the dog hypothesis, that Putin is trying to distract attention away from his domestic problems with Mr. Navalny and, and others. But this is Putin's way of signaling us that he has real capacity to do things that would hurt, uh, hurt us and that he could move against Kuwait, against he can move against Ukraine or others if he so chose. And this is his way of pushing back, I think, against the Biden administration, telling them don't go too far on democracy promotion. Don't go too far about Mr. Navalny. Why do I say this? Well, what does Vladimir Putin care about most? Shockingly enough, it's Vladimir Putin. It's hold on, it's his hold on power. It's the kleptocracy that is governance in contemporary Russia. He oppose, he's opposed Democrats now for quite a while. I don't just mean Democrats small D in his own country, but I mean Democrats capital D in this country from Hillary Clinton to Joe Biden. Why? Because they have a big emphasis on democracy promotion and human rights promotion in other countries, including in, in Russia. And with the protests building up in Russia against the backdrop of a poor economy, relatively low energy prices, and above all, his terrible mishandling of COVID-19. And just as an aside, the official numbers are way, way, way below the, the actual numbers of how many Russians have lost their lives to the, uh, to the disease. My guess is that Mr. Putin is feeling a bit vulnerable and that he is pushing back against the Biden administration, against Europe, basically saying, be careful with your sanctions, be careful with your criticism, be careful with your involvement in our politics. I've got the capability to do things that you don't want to see. Moving right along, I wanted to ask you, India is basically uh, experiencing a national catastrophe. Um, there are suggestions that there could be as many as 3 million to 5 million new cases every day. Um, it's obviously a big and hugely important uh, country uh, in terms of geopolitics. What do you make of what's going on there, and what do you think the impact that that India's catastrophe essentially will have on its role and on on what its neighbors uh, might think to do, given their troubles? John, you used the right word. It's 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 a catastrophe and it's a tragedy. Uh, the scale of loss of life, I think, is large. I don't think the Indians so much are. are intentionally undercounting. I think they're undercounting simply because of the inability to count accurately, given that a lot of these people are not dying in hospitals. Hospitals are overwhelmed and they're dying in something increasingly in rural areas. So I think it's as bad as we think it is. My guess is based on all the reports I'm receiving, it's worse. And unlike, say, China or the United States, which are now on fairly steep, impressive growth trajectories, India is not. Uh, and India, look, there's long been two Indias. Let me just digress for a second, where you have this small, successful, middle-class, Bangalore, high-tech India. But then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of Indians who are living on the edge in rural and urban poverty. And this will really hurt and affect that other large India, somewhere between 500 million and a billion uh, people. So I, I think on every measure, 
this is bad. I also think the political consequences are quite severe. Just the other day, Prime Minister Modi's party got hammered in some local elections. There's now been several votes cast in this context. The initial celebration or or kind or premature celebration about the success against COVID has really come back to has really backfired. Uh, what happened was early on the Indian COVID struggle didn't look so bad. So they allowed all sorts of political rallies to happen, religious events to happen where millions of Indians would gather. Now they're they're paying the piper in a in a tragic way. It's going to really hurt Prime Minister Modi. Not clear to me whether his he and his party can can recover. There, you know, there's not a strong led organized opposition. The old Congress party has fallen on somewhat hard times and so forth. So it's not quite clear to me, but I can imagine a prolonged period now, a fairly weak rule in India, where also several of the states are ruled by different parties. So it's much less organized uh, country. The economic growth of India is, is significantly uh, slowed. Uh, so there, there's, there's no silver lining here. And just as a 30 second more aside, I really think the U.S ought to be doing more. We've announced that we're going to stop preventing intellectual property from potentially reaching places like India, where over time they could make some vaccines. That's not enough, and it's certainly not soon enough. We should be exporting significant amounts of vaccines to India today, if not today, to tomorrow, for humanitarian reasons, for strategic reasons, for economic reasons, and also for ourselves. The mutations and variants that are going to grow up in India and circulate around the world and come to the United States are going to be a, a threat, certainly to unvaccinated Americans, potentially to vaccinated Americans. So I really don't think we are acting uh, with the scale and the urgency that we need to. I was thinking with, you know, reading about it, which I've been doing nonstop for the last three weeks, I guess, that um, I, I'm amazed that we haven't seen... Well, obviously, this is on a much smaller scale, but a sort of Berlin airlift uh, with just thousands of U.S. planes landing with uh, with vaccines and medicines and ventilators and on and on and on. The fact that we haven't done that, I think, is just astonishing. But I agree with you. We sent some oxygen. We sent some PPE. But this is a country of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And the needs are enormous. Right now, the United States is, we've got an excess of vaccine supply. We don't have sufficient vaccine demand in this country. India, shall we say, is at the other end of that spectrum. We can and should be doing more. And there are critical sort of uh, ring fence to China as well, right? I mean, Absolutely. And India is not a formal ally, but they are a strategic partner. And this is... um, this is a real, at a minimum, it's a missed opportunity. Worse, this will become part of the Indian narrative that in our time, our India's time of dire need, why didn't the Americans do more for us? So I worry about the long-term consequences of, uh, of what it is we're doing or what it is we're not doing. What is it, just briefly, um, you know, India and Pakistan is something that uh, foreign policy experts worry about pretty much nonstop. Uh, there have been border skirmishes between India and China. What impact do you think the catastrophe will have on those two, shall we say, conflicts um, going forward? Or will it just be sort of status quo and people will watch 
you know, watch it. I think it's status quo pretty much in the sense the India-China thing, India-Pakistan. Like India is going to have its hands full just making itself function. Uh, the only thing that would change India towards Pakistan right now, if there were a significant terrorist action emanating from Pakistan, India would feel pressured to respond to it. India is also eyeing with great wariness the strategic consequences of the American, the pending American withdrawal, military withdrawal from Afghanistan. They're worried about the Taliban takeover there and the nexus between the Taliban and the Pakistanis. And also how the Taliban could, in, over time, actually radicalize Pakistan, uh, which worries the uh, the Indians. I think what's happening here will also enlarge or exacerbate the economic and military gap between China and, and India in, chi- in China's uh, favor. So I don't see I don't see anything good coming from this. Uh, I don't think it necessarily leads to an immediate crisis, but I think the the strategic consequences of this are, are not good for, for India or for ourselves. I just wanted to ask you one question. I heard you uh, talk about uh, the decision, President Biden's decision to withdraw forces from Afghanistan. You sure. thought that was a bad idea. Um, not sure. that it matters. So did I. But uh, can you walk our audience through why you think it's a bad idea? Yeah, I thought the president set up uh, unrealistic criteria. His basic position was we, the conditions that we could, uh, that would allow us to leave will never rise, and I don't want to stay. And my view was, well, if you de- if you define the conditions as either peace or military victory, that's right, they're never going to rise. But if you define success as the avoidance of a Taliban takeover, which I think would be a humanitarian nightmare cause millions of refugees, pose a threat to Pakistan, which, by the way, is nuclear weapons, and once again, allow terrorists to operate. It's not a pretty future. And I thought we had arrived at a formula for avoiding such an outcome at a relatively modest price, keeping two or 3,000 American troops there, which also then gave provided a context with seven or 8,000 allied troops would stay there, and that plus long-term aid would be enough to keep the Afghan government in, in, in business. Again, not winning the war, but also not losing the war. We have a look, we haven't had a combat death in Afghanistan for something like 14, 15 months. That to me is, that's really significant. So what we had, again, we had arrived at a presence and a level of activity that I thought was enough to support the government, but didn't involve costs to ourselves that were out of line with, what, with, the, with the benefits. And the president decided that uh, it wasn't worth it. I think he, and I think he's wrong. And I think, yes, there'll be some short-term savings in the sense that we'll get a few thousand troops out of, uh, out of Afghanistan. But by the way, they're not going to be out of force structure. So the actual economic savings will be marginal. But I think the medium and long-term consequences will be really bad for the United States and for the Afghan people and for the region. So I, uh, I respectfully disagree with this decision by Mr. Biden. I wanted, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure this is a subject that comes up often at CFR, Germany after Merkel, um, where where do you think we're going? Good question, John. Um, There's no clear succession scenario, first of all, within her own party, but also beyond (laughs) her own party. Uh, It looks like her party could well lose its dominant role in, in modern German politics just because of weariness and scandal and the absence of a commanding personality. 
it's not inconceivable. You have a green-led coalition heading up uh, uh, Germany. So then we're really in uncharted waters. Uh, we're still, you know, we're, still, we're some time away, but uh, we're, we're, we're heading into the post-Merkel era. That's for sure. What's not for sure is exactly what the, what the character of it is at all. And you've got a much broader German political spectrum now from the far left to the far right. Uh, and you, one has to hope that forces of the, how would I call it? It's the new, new left or new center left and I'm or more left of center. Unlike the old center left, which was, uh, the one that we, we live with, you know, for some, the Billy Bronte era for so many, uh, years and other, uh, chancellors of Germany where we're going to have new people in new coalitions. And the real question is, uh, it'll almost be the equivalent of a, a left center, kind of a progressive coalition in this country. And you just don't know what the what the consequences of it will be. So it's part of a larger picture, by the way, of a Europe. Lots of European countries are in or potentially in very different positions. You and I could be have doing a conversation either here or on the golf course or over a drink in two years about France. And it's not inconceivable that the far right Marine Le Pen will be leading the country of France. You've already had Brexit. This is uh, the era of European predictability and stability uh, in which uh, you could take domestic politics for granted as being centrist, in which the EU was the uh, uh, a big part of life. None of that is necessarily assured anymore because the EU has been really hurt by its mishandling of COVID. And we, again, we've got domestic uncertainty in, in the major countries of Europe, ironically enough. This is something I never thought I'd ever say. The country that looks most stable and predictable, hold it, John, but you're sitting down, is Italy. And the reason is you've got Mario <laughs> Draghi. You've got Mario Draghi in, a, in that's, office. That's our headline right there. That's our headline right there. <laughs> President of CFR says most stable company. <laughs> oh, God. It's so true. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, uh, just briefly, um, about France. Um, Le Pen always seems to get, you know, close and then fades at the end. Is What would be, what's different about it this time? She actually seems to be much more viable than she has in past efforts. Well, what's different this time is COVID and both governmental as well as EU, what's seen as inadequate competence. Uh, economy has taken a real hit as the result. And think about it. You think about Brexit. Think about Trumpism in this country. The idea of a populist rightist figure. Why should France somehow be the exception to that pattern? We've seen it in countries in Europe, in the United States, in, in Brazil, in other countries around the world. So why should we think that France is immune to it? You've got tremendous social friction also because of immigration issues, questions of the Muslim minority, of assimilation, and what constitutes Frenchness. This is a society that's on edge in, in, in many ways. And so you're right. I mean, where you began is exactly right, that Le Pen has been close to taking power many times, has never arrived. And I'm not, I can't sit here and say this time is different, but this time could well be different. I, I'm much less confident in ruling it out this time than I was in previous political cycles. 
I asked uh, my daughter, I told her you, know, you were going to be on the podcast, and uh, she asked me to ask him what the president of the Council on Foreign Relations does. So I'm asking you, <laughs> what does the Council on Foreign Relations president do other than assess Iva the Terrible's job performance? <laughs> Well, that takes a lot of work, by the way, uh, but we probably should go there. The uh, well, Let me say 30 seconds on what the Council on Foreign Relations does. Uh, we're in our 100th year, literally born 100 years ago. The whole idea then was uh, to have a, an organization that would be devoted to having a serious conversation in this country on paper and words about this country's role in the world. The hope then was we would not become isolationist as we were becoming with the rejection of the uh, of the League of Nations. Uh, and here we are a century later, once again, dealing with the pandemic, once again, dealing with new strains of uh, <laughs> isolationism. But our mission is essentially the same through our magazine, Foreign Affairs, through our think tank and our fellows, through our websites, uh, through more meetings than I can count, <laughs> through podcasts to basically explain to Americans what are our interests in the world, what are the political, what are the policy choices, how to understand various uh, trends. We're, we're literally, uh, we are nonpartisan. We're independent. We don't accept government uh, money, this government or, or others. But our, so our job is to really broaden and deepen the debate in this country about, uh, about the world and our role in it. And my job is to, is to essentially, uh, as I always say, it's quality control, not editorial control. We don't have a council line that I'm promoting. I've obviously got my own views based on the last half hour. You've heard some of them, but it's it's to see that what we publish and what is said, what's put on the websites is really smart stuff. So whether you know, I'm having a conversation with you or to the few hundred thousand readers of foreign affairs, or we're, we're in schools and colleges, John, in all 50 states and over 100 countries around the world, uh, that our, our educational resources are really quality to teach young Americans about the world. Uh, my job is to see that what we're what we're putting out is is uh, we're putting out a lot of good stuff to put it bluntly. I'd like to think we uh, like to think we are. I will say you're doing your job very well. The fo the footprint of the council is just uh, expanded remarkably, but the quality has not wavered. Um, I visit the site virtually every morning, and I'm constantly uh, surprised. Not surprised. I'm constantly impressed at how how uh, timely and and smart and uh, knowledgeable the commentary and the writing is so you must be doing your job well i don't know i've got a lot of help uh but but thank you for saying it yeah i really am proud of the website cfr.org really proud of the magazine uh look a few years ago we made a decision probably 10 years ago that we were going to continue to try to be a resource say for the executive branch of government for congress for the readers of the magazine for foreign affairs but we were also going to try to be a resource for a much broader swath, a much larger percentage of Americans. So we now do all sorts of programs, say, for the people who give sermons in churches and synagogues and mosques. I talked about our stuff in middle schools and high schools and, uh, and colleges. The most popular feature on our website are these basic explainers. Yes. Uh, yes. Giving or backgrounders. How do you understand uh, a lot of the questions you asked me? Well, what... What if you don't have some of the history about Taiwan or about Ukraine or, or, or whatever it might be? We provide that. So we really try to become an, an educational resource, uh, small e in every sense of the word. And uh, 
I really feel good about it. I think it's important. I think uh, if Americans aren't informed about the world and about foreign policy, we're much more likely to make either bad decisions or worse. We'll make the decision of being isolationists by default. We won't see why the world matters. Right. And that, to me, is really in an age in which viruses that break out in China kill 600,000 Americans. We have got to understand why the world matters and what, what our serious policy options are. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to let you go. Uh, I'll see you on the golf course soon, I hope. And thank you again for doing the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, John. John Ellis here again. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in again on Monday through Thursday next week for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology.